Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Picture, if you will, in your imagination, a set of old fashioned scales, like the ones that the figure of justice holds above the central court in London. Only these scales are as big as planet Earth, vast, huge. And on one side, I want you to put every living organism, every blade of grass, every bird, every tree, bush, creeping vine, from every forest on Earth, every bacteria, every fish, and all the whales, squids, turtles that live in the sea, all the beetles, all the mushrooms, the people, the lot, everything. Okay, done it? Great. Now, on the other side, I want you to put all the man-made stuff. Now, for a long time, that was just, well, you know, a tiny pile of stone tools. Not very much at all. Certainly not enough to make the scales move a micron. But then, the pile got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it became a huge ball of cars and houses and lampshades and carpet samples and old tiles and jewellery and bombs and vases and children's toys and nappies and motorways and oil wigs and everything. And then suddenly the scale started to strain, started to wobble, started to even itself out. And at some point around the year 2020, it began to move. And now we live past the tipping point. We live in a world where all the man-made stuff weighs more than all the rest of life on Earth. Just think about that. And most of that man-made stuff is just made of one thing. Concrete. Concrete. That grey stuff that we live in, that surrounds us in our cities. More than half a trillion tonnes of it. Where did it come from? Who invented concrete? And why did we become so addicted to using it? And at what cost? Hello and welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. My guest today to talk about all these things, all things concrete, is Barnabas Calder, an historian of architecture at the University of Liverpool and the author of Raw Concrete, a book all about concrete and architecture from prehistory to the climate emergency. The only substance we use more than concrete, apparently, is water. Concrete is the main contributor to the fact that man-made materials now outweigh all life on Earth. It's also a massive greenhouse gas emitter for reasons we'll probably discuss in this podcast. How we ended up using concrete so much, so much that it's become invisible. 
And of course, what are the origins of concrete in the first place? To discuss all these questions and more, I'm with Barnabas Calder. Nice to see you, Barnabas. Barnabas looks really cold, by the way, listeners. He is sitting, I guess, in his house and he's got a onesie on. I was assuming that I would get away with it because it's a podcast on audio only, but you've given me away now. No, it's good because I wanted to mention it only because it kind of touches on an important point. And we're going to talk about the origins of concrete, but also, you know, the work that you do is really interesting because you spend a lot of time looking at concrete through the lens of energy, because concrete is an incredibly energy dense way of using building materials. And we're in the middle of an energy crisis. So I think it makes sense to point it out. Can I just ask, actually, just while I'm on that subject, did you have a eureka moment where you started to write about concrete and energy? Yeah, I mean, I started with concrete first because I fell in love with brutalist architecture of the 1960s. You're such a hipster. (laughs) People always say this, but I was in there early. (laughs) I was doing it in the late 1990s and was extensively mocked for it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Listen, I live at the Barbican and I've lived there since the early 90s. So my life has been brutalism. Full of envy from my standard Edwardian brick terrace in Liverpool. So I started with an aesthetic love of concrete modernist buildings. And then for a later project, started to get interested in energy use in architecture historically and found that concrete is one of the biggest problems with contemporary architecture in terms of its environmental impact. And so I'm now in this kind of simultaneous position as a lover and defender of existing concrete and an attacker of contemporary use of concrete. Well, I think that's an okay place to be. I mean, I live in a very concrete part of the world. The Barbican from the 1960s and 1970s, it's all concrete. And of course, things like the National Theatre, which was regarded as a monstrous carbuncle, famously by our king in the 1980s, which I think is a beautiful building, but it's all concrete. But also over the years, I've done lots of films about concrete. I'm not an expert about concrete, but I have explored the idea of concrete. And I've spent a lot of time in China looking at the making and the construction using concrete and also things like the Hoover Dam. I remember doing a piece about the Hoover Dam and standing on the Hoover Dam, which is basically like the world's largest lump of concrete. But we're going to discuss all these things. We're going to discuss context and energy and all these things in a moment. But before we do, Barnabas, I want to start off, I mean, everyone knows what concrete is, but... People get confused about the difference between concrete and cement, for example, and fair enough. What is concrete? Give us the recipe, if you like. Yeah, well, it can vary quite a lot, but the typical contents of concrete is about 20% cement. And cement is limestone that's been heated very hot, getting on for 1,000 degrees centigrade, in order to drive off 40% of its weight as carbon dioxide. And doing that leaves you with a powder that is highly reactive, highly alkaline. And when you mix it with water, it then becomes a sludge that can set back into stone, essentially. So you mix that 20% cement with gravel and with sand and with water, and that produces a sludge, a kind of porridgey, very thick, chemically not very appetizing to touch sludge that you can pour into any mold you like and wait not very long, and it sets as hard as stone and results in a very, very flexible and powerful building material. The modern use of it almost always also uses steel, and it uses the steel as a different thing from the concrete itself, but the resultant material, concrete with steel through it, is known as reinforced concrete, the steel being the reinforcement. And what you can do is put the steel bars into the mould before you pour the concrete in so that the concrete forms around it. At that point, the material you end up with is as strong when you try and squash it as stone 
and as strong as steel when you try and pull it or bend it. So it's a kind of miracle material that achieves these two fabulous properties of strength uh, relatively cheaply and on any scale you like. That's it. That's the podcast over. <laughs> well, yes, you'll know the steel, listeners. You know, you see bits of steel sticking out of concrete, rebar, we call it, and it's sort of twisted. It's exactly that. Great. Okay, so that's concrete, that's reinforced concrete, and that's cement. I suppose my question is, as you've mentioned all these things, you've talked about lots of different technologies that have given rise to reinforced concrete that we build with. That idea of turning limestone into a powder in order to make a cement, how far can we go back to the sort of prehistory of concrete or kind of proto-concretes? You can trace that a very long way back indeed. Humans have been using lime, which is limestone heated to make this very alkaline powder, right back thousands of years, used for all sorts of chemical processes, but also used for certain construction purposes from before the ancient Romans, but they lifted it to a level of a very impressive sort. So things like the Dome of the Pantheon, which is still the largest unreinforced concrete dome in the world is produced using their version of concrete, but it's quite different in how you do it. So today's concrete, you make the sludge and then you pour it into the mold. Their concrete was much more like the way you might build a rockery, say, using a concrete-based mortar that you put the stones into place and then you hold them in place by troweling the concrete around them. Like a cement. Exactly. Or when they spray it to reinforce tunnels and such. Yes, more like a mortar with bricks. And they did indeed use it with brick as part of the technology. So theirs is technically quite different and chemically different because they use a lot of naturally occurring volcanic ash in it, which has really good properties, it turns out. Is there any kind of evidence of like the origins of you figured out that actually if you heat this up and do X, Y, and Z, this would be really useful? Because it's got such a specific thing. And presumably, how did they have the energy to do it? I mean, to make cement, you need a heck of a lot of energy. And we're going to come on to this in a moment, talking about the problems and where we've ended up. But how did they do it? Just with furnaces, with burning wood? or Yes. Well, wood doesn't really get you hot enough. So that's the great challenge with it for lime production before fossil fuels, that there are accounts of lime kilns being run on, for example, nut husks, because they are very oily and therefore they burn very hot. And they also have a huge surface area to volume ratio. In other words, the oxygen can reach lots of it at once. So it burns very intensely. But the problem with plant matter that burns very hot is that it burns very fast. So you're shoveling it in all the time and shoveling it back out as ash all the time. It's a very intense process. So lime is used in the ancient world only where you can't do it with something else. And much of the world built completely without it. If you look at things like Peruvian and Andean construction from before European contact, they have all sorts of clever ways of getting stones to sit together, none of which involve massively heat-intense mortars. And it's a specifically Mediterranean innovation in the Roman form. I mean, did it happen by accident? I'm just trying to work out, because you don't just sort of chance upon this. It's not like oh, the discovery of penicillin, where I, oh, look, my Petri dish is doing quite well. You know. Well, I don't think anyone knows who first came up with lime, but it could well be that somebody had a fireplace, because you often use stone in conjunction with fireplaces. So I think it's easy to imagine a very, very long time ago, people having a fireplace with limestone sitting around it and noticing it became a powder and then noticing at the next rainfall that that becomes something quite different and then finding uses for it. I think it's very easy to imagine some of it being accidental, 
But the other thing to say is that people are enormously more ingenious than we think. So for example, the ancient Mesoamerican peoples had lime and used it for some of the early versions of maize which were deeply toxic until you'd boiled them in lime. And how you get that discovery going, you know, people are immensely ingenious about the things they have plenty of. And the reason they didn't use more lime was just because they didn't have the heat energy, not because they didn't have the ingenuity and the experimental will. I was in Machu Picchu, and if you look at the stonework in Machu Picchu, I mean, famously, you can't even get a credit card in between the stones because it's so beautifully cut. There's no mortar, there's no concrete, nothing like that. It's just sheer skill. It's unbelievable. It's one extreme of the pre-fossil fuel world in the sense that labour is very, very cheap in agrarian societies, in farming societies like that, whereas heat is very expensive. So it's much cheaper to get very skilled laborers to perfectly shape your stones than it is to produce concrete. I give you the pyramids, Khufu's pyramids. Pseudo-archaeologists say, oh, aliens built the pyramids. It's quite an interesting take because the fact that people can't understand how you could build something that amazing, well, <laughs> there is a very simple answer. Labor was cheap and they were working in the context of where they lived. But yeah, there's no concrete in the pyramids as far as I know or anything like it. No, none at all. Almost no heat inputs in the pyramids. The Pyramid of Khufu cost somewhere around 78 million days of human labor, which is cheaply available to someone who rules an area of fertile land as spectacularly fertile as the Nile Delta. Whereas by the time you're looking at 19th century Paris, the energy input represented by 78 million days of labor is almost exactly the same as the 8,000 tons of coal that made the iron for the Eiffel Tower. So those two monuments have almost exactly the same energy inputs. There we go. Aliens didn't build the pyramids, ladies and gentlemen. They just did things differently. And in fact, any seven modern Americans in an average American lifetime at average American energy use will get through more than the amount of energy it costs to build the pyramid of Khufu. And Europeans aren't that far behind. Man, that's incredible. Pause this thought. Keep this thought somewhere in your mind, listener. We're going to come back to it. So we've got the Romans using a form of concrete and using it in different ways. When was the sort of invention of concrete as we would know it now? I'm guessing the Industrial Revolution. Can you just talk us through that little origin story? Yes. By the 19th century, Britain and increasingly America and several other European nations were starting to exploit fossil fuels on a scale that meant that they had wholly new access to heat and typically also had rising conditions for workers that meant that labour was becoming more expensive. So that ancient pattern that you see in the Pyramid of Khufu, that you can use any amount of people sweating, but you try not to burn a single tree is exactly reversed. And suddenly you're trying to use as few workers as you can. And it doesn't matter how much heat you pour into it because coal is so cheap to extract. A Victorian coal miner is producing 2,500 times more energy in a year than a medieval farmer. So the heat becomes enormously cheap and concrete suddenly starts to look like a tempting option. Lime becomes much cheaper to produce. And starting, therefore, to think about ways in which you can change the building process to reduce the amount of labor and increase the speed and increase the solidity and the fireproofness is a worthwhile experiment. And so lots of people try lots of things from the late 18th century onwards as ways of substituting skilled stonework or bricklaying or other technologies for cement. Got it. So there's that economic reasons why things change. But where was the origins of the cement that made the cement that we use now? 
there's such a large number of people experimenting on it in so many different ways. You can see it even in the names for concrete. We want all of their names, dates, cross-reference. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I assume this is the next 72 episodes. <laughs> yes, then. Yeah. What you have is a kind of cluster of activity so big and complex and so inconspicuous because it's just, you know, French rural agricultural workers trying to make their rammed earth farm buildings last longer by chucking some cheap cement into it is one of the origins of modern concrete, which gives rise probably to the majority European name for it, which is B-E-T-O-N, pronounced in different ways according to the country, beton in French. And it's from a medieval French word that means rubbish or sort of stuff left over. And that kind of origin of concrete as this cheap, somewhat shoddy farm material is one of the origins. Several other countries take words from Latin for it because they're wanting to elevate it into that Roman tradition of the Parthenon. So the English concrete is from there. And you also have Italian cemento armato, which is from cement, which again is a Roman word. And the Spanish hormigón, which may be from a Spanish pudding that reminds them of concrete, or maybe from the word molded. But most of them go with the French word rubbish. And you can see even from the multiple names that this is something that's getting simultaneously invented by lots of different people tinkering around through the 19th century. And that's because of this use of coal. Suddenly you can generate lots of heat, you know, in the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. So it's the Industrial Revolution. We've got this new wonder material called concrete that's made of cement and it's made of sand and aggregate that sort of strengthens it. Just take us through, Barnabas, if you could, just what a revolutionary substance this was. How did the landscape change? How did buildings change? It starts off being used in relatively unglamorous ways. So from very early on, it's used for foundations because you can just tip it into the hole you've dug and it produces a good solid foundation quite quickly. It then creeps its way up the building into other uses. So people start to come up with patents for a concrete reinforced beam, for example, that will take wood out of the building process because wood is slow growing, but also flammable. And so as a more fireproof alternative to wooden beams holding the floors up in a building, you start to get concrete beams working into the system in the second half of the 19th century. And would they be reinforced concrete? Yes, exactly. So reinforced beams are the first step. And then people start to work as the century pushes towards its end. People start to get more and more interested in trying to produce a couple of different things, one of which is entire buildings that you could almost print out of concrete where you would build a mold for an entire house, pour the concrete into it, lift the mold off and go on and build the one next door. These never end up working out. That's quite a good idea, that. Why does that not work? Well, it would work fine if concrete poured the way water pours. But if you've ever watched concrete pouring, it's much more like pouring porridge full of gravel. If you try and imagine pouring porridge full of gravel around the corners involved in producing a house, you get terrible results from it. And you could only ever produce the exact same house that the mold made. And life isn't really like that. So it's always ended up being something that felt like something that was on the edge of a major revolution and hasn't quite come about. But the direction that did prove hugely fruitful was to start to think about entire frameworks of buildings being made out of concrete. So rather than building brick walls and putting wooden floors across them, which is the long standing well, since the 17th century, the British norm for how you build, 
you start to try and think of buildings as more of a kind of climbing frame made out of metal or concrete onto which you can then shove window and wall wherever you want them. And the majority of early experiments in the US are with metal frames and many of the experiments in Britain are with metal frames. But in Europe, they start to explore, particularly in Belgium and northern France, they start to explore concrete frames where the columns, the beams and the floor plates would all be made out of reinforced concrete. And you try to work out the most efficient ways of reusing the same molds again and again and again reusing the same metal pieces again and again and again so that you can scale this. Yeah. So it's cheapness, really. It's economy as well as it being a useful building material. But I wonder, how do we go from that to just concrete explosion? I think it's one of these snowballing processes where as the building industry skills up to use reinforced concrete easily and affordably, its qualities rapidly promote it to being the wonder material of the 20th century. So it has all sorts of practical advantages, but it also has kind of organizational advantages. So you can know from a drawing of what steel has gone in and what size the beam is. You can know what its properties are in engineering terms, and that means you can insure it. Whereas if you're talking about a piece of timber or a piece of stone, you need to be a skilled mason or carpenter to look at them and work out whether they're good enough for the job they're being put to. So concrete turns construction into something that can be dealt with as a paper problem by insurers and developers and regulators in a way that is enormously attractive. And gives you a uniformity if you know the recipe exactly that's gone into it. Exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War... And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts... 
any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines of military history. What I want to ask you now is, it's a really good introduction to concrete, but I want to ask you with your architectural hat on. People love concrete, people hate concrete, and it certainly seemed to gain this reputation. Horrible things used to be made out of concrete. I don't know, 1960s and 1970s, post-war, Britain was being rebuilt. I don't know, I think of things like Spaghetti Junction or housing estates built of concrete that became really, really loathed. And I can't name any of the architects who are doing these things. Who built the Biker Wall in Newcastle? I can't remember the name of the famous architect. That's Ralph Erskine. You know, this idea of monstrous carbuncles, there was this sort of hatred towards the look of concrete. I sort of wonder why that came about. It's sort of grey and bleak, I suppose. Well, I think it's grey and beautiful. You know, I think the same qualities that make people find the drama of an alpine gorge attractive are there in a lot of the best concrete architecture from the 1960s. It's not pretty. It's not a thatched cottage with roses growing around the door. It's a very different aesthetic, but it's a mighty powerful one. And that means that if you hate it, you really hate it. And if you love it, you really love it. My first book was called Raw Concrete, The Beauty of Brutalism, because I love it so much. That term brutalism is really interesting because there is something uncomfortable about the term brutal you know, it has connotations. Where did that term come from? And why was it applied to concrete? Yeah, there's two origins to it. One of which is that the French beton brut means exposed concrete without any kind of cladding on it. And so it's brute from that. The other is that there was a sort of pretty cottagey movement in post-war British architecture called the New Humanism. And the architects who got the new brutalism started thought it was twee and crappy and ugly. And they turned against it and they said, if that's what it is to be humanistic, then we want to be brutalistic. And this is what we're going to do. The fact that it then succeeded and got buildings recognized as being it means that it captured something beyond just that moment's pun of about 1953 and did capture something that people see in these buildings. I think they do have a kind of animal vigor, but I don't see it as a bad thing. No, me neither. You know, I think of mid-century architects and people like Frank Lloyd Wright, John Lautner, I think of, who created these beautiful mid-century modern buildings in Los Angeles are just amazing because you can create all these amazing shapes. And you look at something like American freeways, if you fly over them or Spaghetti Junction, there is a beauty and a movement to it that I find really amazing. And I look at the South Bank as well in London and for all King Charles's monstrous carbuncle, I've always really loved the National Theatre and the Barbican that look kind of monolithic, but I think there's a beauty in there, in that strength. Yeah, I totally agree. I think they're absolutely fabulous. What Charles said about the National Theatre was that it was like a nuclear power station. And of course, he's right. Lasden himself, the architect of it, compared it to a nuclear power station himself during the construction process. He compared it to it because it was full of exciting new exploratory technology and for a very important purpose. And Charles did so on the basis that he didn't like the look of either. But the nuclear power stations are stunning. I mean, you know, you can discuss the problems they produce of thousands of years of lethal pollution, but they're amazing to look at. (laughs) It's a small price to pay for beauty, Barnabas, I think. 
I want to finish off kind of where we began by talking about energy and the problems with concrete and what we do. You know, I mentioned right at the beginning, producing concrete is one of the major emitters of global warming gases of CO2 and other things. China is pouring more concrete, unbelievable amounts of concrete. Well, not just China, but all over the world. It takes a lot of energy to make it. And that's the problem, isn't it? You have to burn a lot of coal or gas in order to create the temperatures in the furnace in order to get the chemistry right to make concrete. That's exactly half the problem. The other half of the problem is that the chemical process that produces it lets off four tenths of all the limestone that goes in there comes out as carbon dioxide. In terms of our CO2 budget, I don't know where concrete production comes. Is it sort of above transport or? At the moment, cement alone is 8% of all our emissions, half of it from the energy taken to heat it and half of it from the off-gassing of carbon dioxide from the chemical process. Okay, so what do we do? (laughs) We keep all the concrete buildings we currently have and retrofit them to perform as well as we can environmentally, but we don't demolish them. We can extend them, we can do all sorts of things to them, but we don't demolish them. And at the moment, we're demolishing them epidemically worldwide, which is insane. What's demolishing going to do? It's going to lose fireproof, resilient structure that we could use. The hardest thing to do in sustainable new architecture is producing fireproof, multi-story structure of a resilient sort. So all the structures we now have, we need to keep if we possibly can. So stopping demolishing things for reasons of fashion or profit is hugely urgent internationally. If you can reuse, you reuse. So that's the first step. The other step is to find some alternatives in the new buildings we do build. At the moment, reinforced concrete is absolutely the world's default material. And that's why it's 8% of emissions just for cement. And at the moment, we don't have scalable, viable alternatives that are rollable out to replace it because timber, although it's well understood and very good, takes a long time to grow. And the way we grow it is often quite bad for biodiversity and flood control and soil retention. And it's flammable. It's flammable. You can engineer that out. It's not worryingly flammable. It's not going to produce catastrophes like the awful Grenfell Tower disaster because it doesn't burn like that. And it's very well understood in fire terms. So you can engineer it so that everyone gets out fine, even if the building is then quite badly damaged by a fire. The Chinese made a heat shield for one of their space capsules using oak. Yeah, exactly. Charred wood is very good at all sorts of things, including retarding flame. So yes, there are all sorts of possibilities for clever ways of thinking about wood that make it a good material. But it's not scalable the way that concrete, you can scale up production by just digging out more limestone and more coal and keeping going. Wood, you have to wait till you grow it. So building in structural stone is one of the solutions. Crikey, which means more labour, I guess, doesn't it? No, not necessarily. We can mechanise it with electric vehicles, a lot of it. So it is potentially a zero carbon material with enough electric vehicles to do it and enough electrical machinery to do it. That's interesting. What about, for example, green hydrogen rather than gas or coal to power the furnaces? Is that going to make a difference? No. Electric furnaces would be a better option because you lose a lot of the initial energy making the hydrogen. But even if it's made with renewables and you could store it? Well, that supposes an unlimited capacity for renewables. And they tend to take up a lot more space than fossil fuel extraction. And therefore, there isn't an unlimited capacity for renewables. And the way we're making our renewables is usually very carbon intense at the moment. So trying not to splurge on renewables is also a necessary step for the moment. So basically, we need to rethink this whole concrete thing and massive concrete 
projects. I can understand it in buildings, but if you're building things like roads or giant pipelines or whatever, there is no real alternative, I suppose. There are some projects which it's very difficult to engineer without concrete, but most of them, there were people building them before we started using concrete. And we can look back at what they did. And some of them, we might even be able to question the need for them. Exactly. Well, we have to question the need for lots of things that we do. We need to rethink, which is difficult because human beings are quite difficult and we get stuck in our ways and it's hard for us to change. In some ways, but when we want to change, we change spectacularly fast. You're totally correct. Yes. We need to have a reverse industrial revolution in the sense that the industrial revolution was an incredibly quick adoption of fossil fuels. And once we start really seriously wanting to move away from fossil fuels, we can absolutely do it. We already have the technologies. We just need to want it enough to find the life that fossil fuels brings us less satisfactory than the life that the removal of fossil fuels brings us. And at that point, we'll do it in a shot. Tell me about the Cork House. The Cork House is a lovely building. It's in Eton, outside London, and it's a project by very thoughtful architects supported by a superb technical team where they worked out a way of building a house out of expanded cork that would result in a house that had eaten more carbon in its production by the growing of the cork than it would cost to make it and that would then run on next to no energy because it's really well insulated by all that expanded cork. And they produce this beautiful one-off small house that meets this lovely goal of eating up carbon from the atmosphere rather than contributing it. And it's a wonderful thing to have achieved. So far, it's not something that I can imagine scaling to produce the problem and nor did the architects say it could. Another really exciting low carbon development at the moment is Yasmin Lari's work in Pakistan. She's a retired Pakistani star architect. In other words, you know, sort of famous big name architect. Star architect? I've never heard that term before. <laughs> yeah. Well, with any luck, it's a phenomenon that's on the out. And she's contributing to that because since her retirement, she's been working with people in post-disaster areas of Pakistan to produce emergency housing with very, very low carbon and very local materials that functions better than the emergency shelters that would normally be provided and is financed locally as well. So it's not dependent on a kind of condescending external money and it skills people up rather than de-skilling people and making them dependent. And it's fabulous and so impressive that for some of the most desperately in need people in the entire world, they are outperforming those of us in the rich world by a huge factor in decarbonizing their architecture. And if we're not ashamed to not be competing with that, then I don't know what's wrong with us. Well said. Actually, just finally, you've given us a lovely overview of concrete and why we need to change. What's your favorite brutalist building? We'll end with a love of concrete. This is a guilty pleasure, but it is an office complex for the government of Massachusetts in the United States. It's by the architect Paul Rudolph, and it is completely bonkers. It has this series of staircases and air vents at one point in it that make the most extravagant architects of the Roman Baroque look like people producing porter cabins. It's absolutely astonishing, the curvaceousness, the ridiculously exaggerated textures, the level of attention to detail. And because he was working for a public client, when he was interviewed about it and asked whether it was Baroque in its influence, he said, no, it's a straightforward functional solution to problems of drainage and lighting. Because 
That's what you say if you're a public architect doing spectacular art on the public dollar. (laughs) Barnabas, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you for telling your story. Thank you. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that's given you a bit of food for thought. If you're enjoying the show, then don't forget to please tell your friends and tell your family all about it. And I hope you have a chance at some point, if you haven't, to catch up with all the other episodes that we've done. We are nothing if not a broad church. We cover all kinds of things, things you might expect through to the more offbeat, stranger arcane subjects that still have fascinating stories attached to them and don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for something that we should cover you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can reach out to me on social media send me a dm on twitter or a public tweet whatever you like we love hearing from you and look forward to your company next time While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.